Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? Let's think about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to associate, to speak, and to defend the causes that were for the moment unpopular. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night. And good luck.
And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good night and good luck. Edward R. Morrow, one of America's best noted political commentators and broadcasters, and that was his signature. Good night and good luck. <laughs> good evening, everyone, and welcome to Our Common Ground on this October 24th, 2015. We hope that you are well and that you have been listening to some John Coltrane and some Nancy Wilson and Nina Simone and Dinah Washington and listening to some Lionel Hampton. How about that for the week? This has been one hell of a week, and we thank you for spending your Saturday evening with us, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Tonight, we wrap up our two-part series with our co-host, Dr. Ruby Nell Sales of the Spirit House Project in Atlanta, Georgia. And before Ruby joins us, we're going to tell you a little about her and rapidly go through some events that uh, might be of high interest to you uh, tonight. Dr. Sales is a highly trained, experienced, and deeply committed social activist, scholar, administrator, program manager, public theologian, and educator in the areas of civil, gender, and other human rights. She's an excellent public speaker with a proven track record in conflict resolution and consensus building, and she has preached around the country on race, class, gender, and reconciliation, and she's done some groundbreaking work on community and nonviolence formation. Uh, she also serves as the uh, served as a national convener of the Every Church of Peace Church movement. Along with other SNCC workers, she joined young people from Fort Deposit, Alabama, who organized a demonstration to protest the actions of the local white grocery store owners who cheated their parents. And the group was arrested and held in jail and then suddenly released. Jonathan Daniels, a white seminarian and freedom worker from Episcopal Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, was assassinated during that event as he pulled Ruby Sales out of the line of fire when they attempted to enter the cash grocery store in Fort Deposit, Alabama, to buy sodas for other freedom workers who were released from jail. Tom Coleman, another activist, also shot and deeply wounded Father Richard Morris Rowe, a priest from Chicago, despite threats of violence. Ruby Sales and her comrades was determined to attend the trial of Daniels' murderer, Tom Coleman, and to testify on behalf of her slain colleague. That is the character, that is the spirit of our co-host at Our Common Ground, and we are so very, very fortunate to be a comrade, an ally, a sister, and to have her 
join us in our effort to help America achieve itself here at our common ground. And we thank her for being with us, and she's going to join us very shortly. But I wanted to run through some things. Uh, I, I like to try to start uh, this program, this broadcast, each week, uh, noting something positive that has happened. And one of the things that did happen is that the people of Texas was spared a uh, level five hurricane uh, on this weekend. Um, Patricia, who turned into a tropical depression, uh, is still raining and and uh, its way through the uh, southern portion of Texas. And we wish all of our listeners. Uh, well uh, down there and hope that we can get through without an awful lot of uh, tragedy and crisis and loss of uh, homes. Uh, There was a train derailment uh, on today. Uh, No one was killed. There were two operators on that train were able to get to safety, so we wish you all well. We certainly had our thoughts uh, on our friend uh, India DeClaire of the I Declare show, who lives in the area. The other thing that we want to uh, tell you about that is positive is that the FCC voted to eliminate exorbitant phone call charges that separate inmates and their families on yesterday um, to make communications between convicted offenders and their loved ones more affordable. Over the last three years, I have been involved in a phone call, writing, um, briefs um, about inmate calling services that sometimes can cause charges up to $14 per minute to connect, and we've had some relief. The FCC also uh, bans flat rate calling and closed loopholes that allow service providers to impose exorbitant add-on fees to things like using a live agent to pay. Um, And uh, FCC Commissioner Mignon Clyburn, yes, the daughter of the um, the former uh, of uh, Representative um, Clyburn of South Carolina, um, his daughter, uh, said on yesterday after the vote that voting to endorse today's reforms will eliminate the most egregious case of market failure I have ever seen in my 17 years as a state and federal re- regulator. Um, Meanwhile, of course, the National Sheriff's Association issued a statement saying that it is shocked and disappointed by the order. Of course they are, because they're in bed with the profiteers of the prison industrial complex and these um, communications vehicles for inmates to be able to contact their attorneys and their families was part of the racketeering and you could only call it that. Uh, You will recall that uh, on our sister station network, TruthWorks Network, 
we had done uh, a very long series on the issue of working while black. And I wanted to report to you something very um, significant happened in the city of Boston uh, this week. The a city of Boston employee won a $10.9 million uh, suit in, uh, in the Treasury City of Boston Treasury Department discrimination uh, suit. It is very unusual. Uh, a Boston jury awarded this city hall employee $10.9 million in a verdict on Friday, on yesterday, in a discrimination and retaliation suit in Suffolk County Superior Court. Uh, Chantal Charles, a Haitian American who worked as a senior administrative assistant in the city's Treasury Department for nearly 30 years filed a complaint against the city and her supervisor, and uh, she was found, her discrimination was found to have grounds. She alleged that City Hall had denied her pay raises, promotions, overtime pay, and compensation for performing a supervisor's uh, duties. And she argued that um, the city argued that Charles had been passed over for promotions because she had not applied for the positions in which they say were filled with qualified people. Um, the jury found that the complainant and the city, uh, that the supervisor, the respondent, uh, and the city had not only engaged in a pattern of discrimination against black employees, but that they had also retaliated against this particular woman when she filed a charge of discrimination with the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination. Um, so the jury awarded her $10 million in punitive damages, $500,000 for emotional distress, and $388 thousand dollars in economic damages um, and I should note that the allegations in this complaint were made under a previous administration the Tom Anino administration and not the current mayor Marty Walsh um, and I should also note that as usual the city will most likely appeal uh, the verdict. I don't think that they will be successful. So those are two things that I think that um, we really want to open up this broadcast uh, to have a positive note because uh, there are a couple of things that uh, Dr. Ruby Sales and I are going to be talking about, and we hope that you will call us at 347-838-9852 to talk about some of the events that have caught your eye. Specifically, I know a lot of you would like to talk about uh, the uh, House Committee hearing on Benghazi, um, I want to uh, I want to join Sarah Palin. Uh, Sarah Palin indicated that you know she wasn't satisfied with what with what what Hillary Clinton had to say in that committee. She wanted to talk to Mr. Benghazi herself. Okay, uh, so we'll do that. The other announcement that we do have, and we're just so happy, is that 
Alpha host of the Alf long running Alpha the Alpha show has returned home. He is at home with his family and of course uh we are just really pleased because it is a sign of his progress against a very serious illness that he's faced over the last uh months and we're always um I have been elated that he he has over the last couple of weeks been able to join us at our common ground. I even heard him call into the I declare show uh, and give some brilliant analysis about what is happening uh with the run up to the two thousand and sixteen campaign for president both in the GOP camp as well as the DNC candidates. Don't forget, in case I forget, to tell you at the end of this broadcast that tonight is when we fall back. Just fall on back. Get that extra hour of sleep there in the morning. Uh, I've been pretty much under the weather, so if you hear me coughing, I apologize in advance. Um, Got my little lozenges sitting here and... Uh, my sister, who has been visiting from Florida, has been uh, making tea and and prodding me because I'm the baby sister. So um, we also want to um, sh- a shout out to her because she sh- she I'm not going to tell you how many years, but I just want to tell you that you know like she's seven years older than I am so she's really been babying me through two weeks of some very hard horrid kind of virus stuff and fevers and stuff and I really appreciate that and happy birthday to her she uh celebrated her birthday on October 15th so let's get started and I want to say Miss Ruby Dr. Ruby uh Sales is in the house and thank you so very much as we try to close out this whole issue ruby of rebellion and resistance how are you i'm well thank you thank you how are you uh I'm are you over in your here. your cold your virus or is it still incubating well it's incubated into something else ruby i just tell you um <coughs> I'm gonna be coughing a lot and you're gonna to have to hold you're gonna to have to hold up the sky tonight. But I okay. do wanna tell our audience about uh an award that we are just so proud of of you and that we're just thrilled that you along with Cheryl Blankenship of the Spirit House Project and the Spirit House Project have been named recipients of the 2015 Martin Luther King Jr. Award from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And so, I mean, we are just, I'm just so proud of you. I'm so glad to know you. I just wish I were in Atlanta to give you a big hug. I know you don't want to hug me with all these germs. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean, it is really quite an honor. And, and uh, for those of Martin you who are King. in New yes. York City, the banquet is going to be on Saturday, November 7th, where Dr. Ruby and and uh, Cheryl Blankenship and the uh, Spirit House Project will receive these awards at the Riverside Church in New York City. It, it just inspirational social justice advocacy that 
has long been waiting to be uh, acknowledged and 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 get your due. Thank you so very much for your service and through Spirit House, and uh, big kudos to Cheryl Blankenship as well, Ruby. Thank you so very much. We're so proud of you. Thank you very much. I also wanted to tell people who will be at the American Academy of Religion that Dr. Cornell West and I will be plenary will have a plenary conversation on the role of the black church and movement building. So if you're at the American Academy of Religion in November, please drop by. And here, what I hope will be an exciting conversation. It will take place in Atlanta, Georgia. And I don't have the details before me. All night, Reverend Ruby and and Nell, Cornell, Dr. Cornell West. Oh, wow. What a. What a privilege for people who will have the opportunity to 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 to, to, to be there. Um, you know, Ruby, I've known I've known Nell West since I was a student. He was one of the first people that I met as I roamed around Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> trying to find my feet. Who? I, the first time I saw him, I said, "Who in the hell is?" <laughs> <laughs> this is wild hair, right? Yes. <laughs> and he and he had on uh an African uh, it, I just have to say it it was it, it looked to me like he had a piece of African fabric wrapped around his naked body. Uh <laughs> and and you know, and I I mean, I was right out of high school and I'm going Okay, <laughs> this is what Cambridge is all about. Okay, so I, I'm just so uh, so pleased that we are acknowledging people that are doing real work uh, for real people. But l- let's start out, Ruby, because we're going to be bringing this whole issue of rebellion. You are clearly. You have clearly witnessed and been part of history. And my sense is that when you see as much, you gain the kind of wisdom that is necessary to see not only backwards, but to see forward. And let me ask you a question. This is going to be a, a open question, and you know, and even for our audience to start thinking about: um, Is this what we imagined? Is this what we imagined our freedom would look like? Absolutely not. We did not, at least for those of us who were in the Southern Freedom Movement and Northern Freedom Movements of the 60s through the late 70s, we did not imagine that freedom meant walking back into the house of the empire and becoming servants at the footstool of the empire. We imagined that freedom meant an opportunity to build up a new world and to build new relationships with each other and with all aspects of creation. We ordinary black people 
who sacrificed so much in the movement, ordinary black people who were the heartbeats of the Southern Freedom Movement, sacrificed to create a world and spaces that they themselves knew that they would never walk into. But they were race people whose greatest vision was to advance the race. And they did not imagine, as to paraphrase Fannie Lou Hamer, that we had come all of this way just to sit on the throne in the White House or to be a king in the service of the empire. They did not imagine that they were opening doors of white universities where they themselves would never attend to create a black elite who distanced themselves from the people's struggle. We imagined a different world. And I think people who are dead, who were part of the movement, would be absolutely shocked that we allowed other people to translate the meaning of our struggle and to revise it to mean integrating into a burning house, becoming like the empire. And and we did not think deeply enough as a community. Once we had won the war in the South, we did not ask the fundamental question of what is the meaning of freedom. We did not have endless conversations that talked about the meaning of freedom. We did not talk in the North, make a connection between police brutality that was that in Oakland, California, that gave rise to the Panthers and the police brutality that we had seen in the streets of Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina. We suddenly allowed people to steal our minds and to tell us that what we had died and fought and struggled and sacrificed for was an opportunity to recreate ourselves in the image of the empire. No, BJ, we did not imagine that this is what freedom would mean for us. Absolutely not. I always imagined that because all of my work as an activist all through uh, my young years um, had to do with grassroots organizing, had to do with grassroots activities to bring poor, poor black people out of the shadows, to build paths for poor black people to find opportunity that was hidden from them to ensure that the institutions in which we were creating would have longevity and would be sustaining for a powerful and 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 liberated people and yes. I am just not seeing that. I, I well, I think that we do not. Let's just do a little quick history lesson here. We do not understand that the resistance 
movement in the South was more than a movement about civil rights. It was a movement about human rights, the right to be a dignified, full human being in a society that said that we were property of white people and that our lives did not matter. It was an economic movement that shattered sharecropping and the plantation system in the South. We rarely understand this. It was an economic movement of ordinary people, who women in Montgomery, Alabama, and men who were maids and janitors riding those buses who one day said enough is enough. This was not a movement of middle-class black people, the resistance that broke out. It was a resistance of working-class, ordinary black people. And they were the ones who rode the buses in Montgomery and who boycotted those buses for more than 365 days. It was a popular people grassroots movement of women like Fannie Lou Hamer, Fourth Grade Education, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, SNCC, Victoria Gray Adams, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Annie Devine, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Clara Mall, local leader, Lowndes County, Alabama, John Hewlett, president of the Lowndes County Citizens Association, ordinary black people. And one of the things about the movement that we must remember is that it not only changed relationships in white America, but it changed relationships in the black community. Suddenly, ordinary black people who did not have a high school education had access to the microphone, and they were the ones who were defining on a daily grassroots level the terms and condition of the resistance movement in the South. So we had not only rearranging racial relationships, but class relationships in the black community. And not only class relationships, but psychological perceptions of who we were as a people. Out of those movements emerged the reaffirmation that our lives mattered, that black is beautiful. But, But even contemporarily, as we look back, on that history um and begin to to look even over the last 2 or 3 years that somehow there was something brewing um after we got over our impassioned disconsonance with this African American president i felt that black people were beginning to become engaged again in some kind of renewed movement, yet we had not formulated the demands about that movement. And here we are in 2016 with this African-American president um, preparing to leave office, and we're facing a new, a renewal of the kind of 
acceptance of capitalism as the only system in which we can have power. How did that happen? Well, I think several things happened. When you have people tell you that the destiny of your movement was the was the opportunity, the success meant that you could move in the world like white people. It's only natural that you would believe that a black president would offer all kinds of solution to issues that black people are facing in this country without being sophisticated enough to understand that when a black person sits at the highest seat of power, white power in this country, there are impediments to what he can do for you as a black person. He's not, he would not be permitted to sit in that position if he were a radical freedom fighter. So it, it's really naive to think that you can rise up through the system and be as authentic as you possibly can be without being cut down or removed from your job. Now, he did discover that once he got in office, that despite the office, he was a plain black person, stigmatized by his blackness. So I think that it really, and we have to also understand the assaults on the black community, COINTELPRO, the systematic murders of civil rights and human rights activists like Fred Hampton. We have to understand that this just didn't happen because black folks were kind of sitting down, not, you know, stupid. It happened because there was a concerted FBI war against the black community through COINTELPRO. And it was a manipulation. And just as we see black people today who 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 cannot understand why any black person would say black lives matter, who would really sit back and be silent as the government moved moves on black lives activists, we allowed white people to say to, to make us believe that we were a danger to each other, that the Panthers were killers, that they were violent, without just taking a deep breath and saying, wait, where is the violence really coming from? So the empire is really very masterful at the manipulation of our minds and stealing our minds. But it, it, you have to understand that it was a war psychological warfare, propaganda, all of the elements of a war were exacted against the black community to return to the stability of white supremacy. I think we we forget that sometimes. We just kind of think, oh, well, we just kind of allowed this to happen without understanding that it just didn't happen, that there were a series of major moves by this government to cut the heart out of freedom struggle in the black community and in the Native American community and in the Latino communities. And they were determined that people would not not only have the strongholds that allowed those movements to grow, you cannot have a movement where there's a, a shattered community. You cannot have a movement 
where family relationships have been torn asunder. You cannot have a movement where intergenerational movement uh, relationships have been fragmented. That fragments the entire community. How does one have a movement in the midst of that kind of fragmentation and dismemory? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, so, so I, our, our our fertile ground for movement where we always incubated and grew movement, that fertile ground has been destroyed by intentional actions to destroy those strongholds. But you know, and I don't think we take seriously that. I I I don't think we take it seriously as well, and that's what is so disturbing. Um, as we see all of the evidence that there is still a concerted and stronghold effort to maintain the vestiges from which we struggled out of slavery during during the during the period that um over the over the last year i've really been doing a lot of reading about slave rebellion and slave resistance and one of the things that i've concluded is that resistance is simply saying no to the system that would oppress you. And it seems to me that rather than saying no, rather than understanding uh, our learning from our ancestors and learning from our history, we just keep repeating the history, but we're not learning the lessons of the history. Because slave during slavery, we often considered the consequences of resistance. Uh, We often, our slave ancestors often put into place those things which would put them in great jeopardy, but they did it because they understood that every form of resistance brought them closer to some form of freedom. And I, I just don't see. I mean, I was I, we've been we've been talking about um a political system that does not work for us. We've been worried about whether Bernie Sanders is a candidate or Hillary Clinton is this candidate and 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 looking at these debates that really don't speak to any of our our issues and deciding this is these are the kind of things that are in our interest and and my response to that is they really aren't ruby that we have to be about the business of it's time to imagine our own institutions it's time to go beyond black lives matter to black power matters because only we can mobilize our people and our power and become a domestic army against the the forces of oppression the the system which allows a 12-year-old Tamir uh Rice to be murdered in the street and some 
panel says it was legitimate, that it was okay, or that an off-duty police officer who came out of nowhere to murder a young man, Mr. Corey, in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida this week, or to see a response in Baltimore to the uprising in Baltimore is that capitalists are going in and purchasing um, real estate all through the black community and, and saying that that's a re- that's a, somehow a solution. When are we going to to trust each other? And that is what is is fundamental to resistance and rebellion. That we have to trust each other. Can, can I just for a moment interrogate the words resistance and rebellion? I'm glad that for most of what you said, you said resistance, because as I was looking at that, these those words tonight, I had a reaction to the word rebellion. Rebellion supposes that you're a child rising up against the legitimate authority. It really perpetuates the master-slave syndrome. Resistance says that you are involved in going up against a system that is not legitimate, that it raises you up to a level of of freedom fighters, whereas rebellion infantilizes, I think, as I think about it, it, it says that there's a master somewhere, there's a legitimate father somewhere, and that your children rebelling against the father. There's something that I don't like about the word rebellion. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Well, I know how important language is in in all of this. And my sense of rebellion is is simply this that that rebellion is a, a form of continual acts of resistance um that um acts of resistance is when you rise up to change that which does not that that works in your that works to perpetuate forms of oppression well when i think of resistance i think of nonconformity constant and perpetual nonconformity i think of not resting with the status quo i think of constant motion of nonconformity, constantly in the process of upbuilding institutions and alternatives, a counterculture up against the white supremacist culture. I think of rebellion as in the same way that children rebel against their parents. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's something about that term tonight that grabbed, because when we talked about it the other day, 
It didn't touch me that way. But as I thought deeply about it tonight, as I was preparing for this program, it struck me just like the other day I was thinking when I was talking with some Palestinians, they were saying that Palestinians are suffering. And suddenly I heard suffering in a very different kind of way. There's a problem with that word because it doesn't name who's doing the suffering. You could be suffering because you can't eat. You can be suffering because you're poor. You, but it doesn't say that you're suffering because of an occupying. In other words, there's no subject. It allows white people to, I mean, it allows Israelis to obscure that they are the doers of the action, that they are the doers that perpetuate the suffering, that they that they are the ones who are bringing about certain conditions, and it allows them to obscure the brutal nature of the things that they do to Palestinians to make them suffer. So I'm thinking deeply about a need to develop a movement language where we name the subjects of the oppression. I was also thinking about that as we were talking about enslavement. The minute someone has you calling the enslavers masters rather than naming who they are as enslavers, that has set up a certain condition in your mind. That has set up a certain hierarchy of who the of who white people are in our minds. When you call enslavers planners, you legitimize them and obscure the nature of who was really doing the work, and you give them a, a, a position of honor when in fact they were enslavers in very dishonorable positions. When you talk about the Mid-Atlantic Passage as if black folks in captivity were going on a vacation without really naming the horrors of that crossing. I, I So I think language works for the empire, and it confuses mm-hmm. us about who we are and what the empire has been to us and what the empire has done to us. It elevates and aggrandizes the empire while demeaning and dehumanizing us. Well, so I think... Go on. I look, I, I look back at... Um, I look back at Baltimore, and I think of that as a rebellion a rebellion against imposed um, curfew, a rebellion against uh, um, imposed response to murder by police. I, I see that as young people deciding you are not going to tell me how to behave or how to respond. Yes, but who are they rebelling? See, the minute you say rebellion... In my estimation, we can open the phone lines and get people's what other people think about this. But the, there's some, they were resisting. They were resisting containment, surveillance. 
criminalization of activism. They were resisting being who the empire said that they should be, and they were resisting being contained in very small spaces. They were resisting the surveillance that comes along as a tool of oppression through profiling and and and, and lockups. So they were, to me, they were they were resistors. They were resisting as opposed to rebelling. Because resistance implies organized struggle. Rebellion says spontaneous kind of reactionary postures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how I hear it. I, 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 and like I said, this might be off base because this just came to me tonight. Well, I I think I the way that in which I'm thinking about it. For those of you who would like to join us in this conversation about the difference, the distinguishing differences between uh, what is rebellion and what is resistance, our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, and you can get in on this discussion because i think it is a re, uh, it, it 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 certainly your raising this ruby has 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 made me start thinking about the way in which i think of it and i think of rebellion as an act and i and think, I think of, of resistance as an action verb but i think of it as systematic and organized i think of rebellion as spontaneous disorganized and the rec- and and assuming that there's a legitimate power that you're rebelling against to me there's something infantile about that Whereas I'm I'm not, I'm not so sure I'm ready to accept that it's that there's something infantile about responding spontaneously or responding that or that resistance has to be spontaneous uh resistance in my mind doesn't necessarily have to be spontaneous no i'm saying precisely that that i Mm -hmm. think black people are constantly in a state of resistance or we would be dead as bad as we some of the issues are that we face and as much as we have not lived into the fullness of our capacity as freedom fighters, I do think that we are, that resistance is constant. That black people have been in a constant state of resistance for 400 years. Let me give you an example of what I mean by resistance. For instance, I think that there has been a tremendous and tragic um, misappropriation of some of the resources in our own communities, for instance, uh, the black church. And I think that when congregations stand up to the management or whoever's in control of of, of their church and says, and 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 decide that we are going to organize this church in response to the needs of our community in 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 regard to the needs of oppressed people in regard to the treatment of black children and black elders elders in our community we are not going to be about 
spending the meager resources that we have in trying to be something that we are not and we were never meant to be, that we are going to bring um, the forces of our faith to issues that transform people's lives and not holding up some image of another kind of life that's not real for the community where we reside. I see that as resistance. I see that as resistance. That's one form of resistance. There's resistance within the internal power structure in the black community, and there's resistance uh, from the assaults from the outside. Let me tell you why I say resistance. You mentioned the word black power just a few minutes ago, and that's an important word because the minute you assert your human rights as a black person in a white supremacist world, you are challenging white power, and you're saying that black people that that black people have the right. to be able to control our destinies. We have a right to live in the largeness of a society. We have the right to exist as a people. That, to me, is resistance. Black power, And the reason why white folks get so upset when you say black power is that black power, in fact, does pose a threat to white society because it demands equality, because it demands a rearrangement of relationships. It demands where there's black power, Native American power, or Latino power. You cannot have white power in the way that white power exists ideologically, culturally, and structurally today. So it is indeed a threat to a white supremacist society, black power. But black power is not to be imagined as an aggressive, dominating force in the same way that white power has been exercised. Black power, in the way that I understand it, the challenge to white supremacist power, is liberating. It is an act of resistance the minute you say that I have a right to have power in a society too, that I have a right not to be powerless, I have a right to have voice, I have a right to be visible, I have a right to be co-creators, history makers, that to me are acts of resistance. And, and I think that black power is very important despite the way in which white people try to degrade the meaning of black power. Black power simply is a reiteration of the phrase that black lives matter, because in a white power world, black lives do not matter. And so a call for social change is a call to dismantle a white supremacist society where the only people who are considered legitimate power holders are white people. So that's why white people got very upset with the call for black power, because they understood that black power would diminish white supremacist power, 
Because when black people have power, then it means that we're equal citizens in a society that we have a, that we have human rights. And the more rights you have as people of color, the more white supremacist. Notice I said white supremacist power is diminished. So I think when one asserts one's human rights, I think and one's Right to power, that's resistance. That's not rebelling. Okay, let, let, let's take this to um, an even higher level. When we are talking about, you know, for instance, I, 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 was, I was very stunned and I was very grieved. Agree, I felt very grieved by the announcement this week that the mother of Freddie Gray had mm-hmm. attempted suicide. Yes. Um, and in that, this whole notion of resistance and rebellion and the whole notion of black power matters. Because I, I've just decided I'm not saying Black Lives Matter anymore because there's just so many contradictions to that that I think that we have to move um, in, into another dimension about about that and mobilizing our own power. How how does that translate to a mother, um, the mother of Freddie? Gray, or the young woman who was uh, during the Baltimore uprising and rebellion, um, who was shooing her son, beating her son yes. with a shoe, uh, and now she's facing eviction after all of the nonsense about she was going to get a reality show and being used as some kind of pawn in the media frenzy uh, about. Baltimore and 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 black parenting. So how does it translate? I'm really concerned, Ruby, that we have black people who don't have a clue. I mean, like this week, uh, the DNC and Black Lives Matter movement people announced that they're going to have a democratic debate black lives matter but how does that translate to people who get up every morning they have they get their children ready for school they're fearful about what's going to happen to their children once their children arrive at schools where there is a po- police officers and black children are being sent home because they have afro puffed hair um how does it translate? How are we going to get to the people for which mobilizing is most important? Because I think that this class of of what I call black mouths, <laughs> um, they they figure out their own stuff. Yes, but I think you see in a democracy. Voting is not bad. Participating in a society is not the problem. It's how you participate. 
and who you choose to be the representation of what you stand for. It is about how you understand who you are in the world and whether or not the community has the ability to flex its its muscles in terms of social change. Part of the problem is that the people who are able to, when when you co-opt people in your community who are able to to wage struggle and you incorporate them within the system, then your community is left vulnerable. And so I think that what has happened to us, we've got to look at very much the very question that you opened up this conversation. How did we imagine freedom? What does it mean, as Du Bois says, to be both African and American? And how do we resolve what sometimes rubs up against each other? How do we resolve that? What do we do with that? What does it mean to be American? Who decides and sets the terms for what it means to be an American to be American? What would happen if all of the black people or most of the black people who entered universities and got an education, if they put that education in service of the people, what would happen? I think in that, the service I, I think of that, our people. I, I think that that is certainly has to be the core, the core of not just public discourse, but of black discourse. And Ruby, I've been doing this since 1985, and we have tried to, as best we can, propose the kinds of solutions talking to people like you and talking to people like Dr. Ben who can give us the benefit of history and analysis, Dr. Naeem Akbar, Dr. Um, uh, so many doctors and so many people right. that I can't call all of their names, but every black brilliance has been a voice on our common ground, and we are still as my dear, dear friend, um, would say, and we are still not free. We're at the top of the hour. When we come back, I want to talk, I want to hear you talk more about that, Ruby. Who are we as 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 black Americans, and what do we imagine? Uh, and for those of you who are out there, our number is 347-838-9852. We cannot always pretend that misleadership, the black misleadership, is at the core of how we define ourselves and and the way in which we have gone wayward. You're listening to Our Common Ground and my co-host tonight, Ruby Sales. We're talking about resistance and rebellion, bearing witness and igniting our own power here at Our Common Ground. You stay with us. 
347-838-9852. Needs to be dealt with right now. At this very moment, you are standing in the eye of the hurricane, and you're going to sit here and pretend. You think that White House is going to protect you? You're not the fixer here. You're the problem. You're a client. You're my client. Tuned into Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. on Blog Talk Radio every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Are you breathing oxygen in? Are you raising the energy up? Or are you bringing the energy down? There's no middle ground. It's your real, raw, and right now talk radio. I Declare Show, Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Blog Talk Radio. I declare it. Dealing with the difficult, real, raw, right now. I declare a show, baby. Hi, I'm Venus Williams. You know, I heard recently that the two main reasons for not getting an annual mammogram are limited access and fear. I know that there are low-cost and even free screenings at some hospitals and clinics, and I've even heard of mobile mammogram units in some areas. Talk about service. Look, I know getting a screening is not as exciting as shopping, but life is for living. So take the first step to breast health. Get the mammogram. For more information, please visit BreastCancerAwareness.com. This is Our Common Ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now, back to Janice. And we want to remind you... I, the I Declare show on Tuesday nights at 9 p.m. here at Blog Talk Radio. Our friend India Declare brings it real, raw, and right now. And you should 
tune in. You know, we have got to, as much as we can, to keep alive the independent voice of black discourse in this country because people are stealing our voice. People are saying we said something and we didn't say it at all. We thought something and we didn't think it at all and nobody bothered to check with us. We at Our Common Ground and Independent Black Media, we broadcast based on what we know to be real. And Ruby Sales, our co-host tonight, is definitely on the real deal uh, because we're talking about real people, real lives, real black lives, not some made-up black lives. Ruby, um, before we went off on on, on break, uh, we, we were really talking about how we get, how we get to our people. I, I think that black people as a whole must begin to ask very serious questions about what is our agenda. Who are we and what is our destination as a people? We have mind confusion that permeates the minds of all of us in some kind of way. So how do we get to another level of consciousness where we begin to imagine ourselves whole, where we do not believe that our mission is to be melted down into this white American pot and imagine success as being just that our destination is to be this thing called white Americans. What does it mean? Who gets to decide what it means to be an American? Whose standards and values do we comply with? Who sets the terms of the discourse? These are, why do we get an education? I know when I was coming up in Columbus, Georgia, we were inspired not only by our own individual desires and ambition, but you were inspired to be race people. You were inspired to make a connection between your education and the well-being of the race. You were inspired to not only be in, in, that you were inspired to be at the service of a people struggling to be free. What has happened today is that we see ourselves with an integration model and a melting pot model of being in the service and the guardians of the prerogatives of white supremacy, of a white supremacist state. The confusion is everywhere in the black community. It's not just where working class or black people who are economically dispossessed reside. It's in all of us. And that's what we've got to, even those of us who say that, who can talk the talk about black people, we give the best of our lives at white institutions. And students at Tuskegee Morehouse 
Spellman will never hear the sound of our voices. And we say to each other that, yeah, black schools are really backwards and repressive, and did it, but I've taught at white schools. They're very racist. So it's a matter of what you choose. And why is it that when I, when some of my colleagues and friends talk about the heady experience of being at Harvard, so the the the, the false consciousness is something that afflicts all of us, and we've got to be real about that. When the best of your talent is in the service of white America, and act as the guardians of white society. And you all desert your community, our communities, to go and live in white America. Who fortifies the gates of our community? None of our hands are clean, is what I'm saying. It's not mm-hmm. just enough to talk to talk. What difference if you have all this knowledge and you're not sitting in a circle with young black kids as our teachers did us? imparting the knowledge and telling the stories and help shaping the memories and reminding us of where we've come from and where we want to go. We have not been faithful to our tradition and to our histories. And there's always been some confusion in the black community about our destination. So we've got to really look at that. How do we use our education? What did it mean for generations of African Americans since the 60s to get an education and never go home again? To become strangers at your parents' table and strangers at the community's table. We've got to look at that. That has cost us something. We have been absent without leave. And so we always pose the question in terms of what poor black people are not doing. But there's a larger question there, that we've all been complicit in our own powerlessness. And, for example, I said this the last time we talked, Of course, Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon, all of them laid the foundation for the war on crime and the war on drugs in the black community, which instituted the prison industrial complex. My problem with just going to that extent is that we had thousands of black intellectuals. We had thousands of practitioners. We had thousands of black people working in prisons. We had thousands of black preachers who had education. Why didn't they tell us what was going on? Why didn't they provide a functional analysis that would help us to make a cogent, have a cogent understanding of what was going on in our communities right before our eyes? that we were under assault. They sat in Congress in 1991 and agreed the Black Caucus to allow weapons from, from, from Iraqi wars to be given to police departments in this country. They knew about the 
the extreme militarization of the police department. They knew that soldiers from wars in the Middle East were being recruited by police departments. Ordinary black folks didn't know that. But the intelligentsia knew that. Politicians knew that. What was their obligation to inform the community about the dynamics that the community did not have the proximity to the action to understand what was going on? I think we all dropped the ball. So so how do we begin to pick up the ball? Um, tell the truth. The first thing we've got to do is to tell the truth. Okay. We've got to look at not only systemic issues, but we've got to look at how we were complicit in institutionalizing those oppressions and the abandonment of our communities and our young people. And what did it mean for people who saw people throw eggs at their children on Friday who would then turn them over to people to teach them without understanding that the people who were teaching them were the same people who were throwing eggs at them? How could you leave your children unexposed and vulnerable like that? We have to look at that. Why do we think that the education was worth the psychological bearings of our children? So these are the issues, issue by issue. We've got to look at the segregation. We've got to look at what we think about success. We've got to look at what is the role of the black intellectual. We've got to go back to the notion that black art must be functional. It must move people from one position of oppression to one step towards liberation to another step towards liberation. We have to understand that black intellectuals in a global white supremacist world must be guardians of the safety and the well-being of the black community. We've got to start having serious conversations. And then one of the other questions we have to face, when do we stop building communities? Because once upon a time, we built communities. Even what we would consider the most conservative organizations in the black community built institutions. Now we don't build institutions. We go and serve in white institutions. These are critical problems. Now we're in a situation where Western hegemony is being globalized. All around the world now, Westerners, white Westerners, are globalizing oppression and using the same tools of oppression around the world. Whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in the Sudan, no matter where they go, they're using the same tools of oppression. And now we have to not only deal with the implications of our situation in this country, but now we've got a global reality to deal with where black people around the world are being contained, are under surveillance. And the only thing that, that, and that, 
when you look at the Palestinian struggle, we see a people who only who have just their body cells to go up against these massive weapons of destruction. Now we knew that there were massive weapons of destruction in this country. Congress knew that. Black people in Congress knew that. Why didn't they tell us that, BJ? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got to ask those hard questions. Well, in, you know, Ruby, I am always a proponent of looking at solutions uh, in the place where we have mechanisms in which to implement uh, those solutions. I want to talk about community centers. There there are very few communities across this country uh, that don't have uh, the Boys Girls Club, the YM and the YWCA. Our children go there after school for programs, um, some of our churches. But those institutions don't belong to us, BJ. Exactly. The minute you bring in a radical program, those institutions will move on the programs. What I'm really trying to say is that one of the things that w- that happened post-civil rights, post-human rights struggle in the South and the North is that white people destroyed all black public spaces that belonged to us. And we tried to create the streets as a public space, and they began to criminalize the streets. So where uh, the only public space that's really left that belongs to black people today is the church. Mm-hmm. And we know the state of the black church. But think about that. Where are the black public spaces that really belong to us as they did during segregation, as they did even in the north uh, mm-hmm. prior to the 1960s. Where are those public spaces? We, uh, white, I mean, white supremacists have destroyed public spaces and criminalized them around the globe for people of color. There are no more well, public spaces. You know, but I, I, I think the thing is that we have to begin somewhere and. In terms of organizing and developing the kind of training and educational tools and and uh, resources that we need in our communities, we've got to start, for instance, uh, I know that the Howard University Law School has a number of programs, and I'm wondering if one of those programs is to teach activism to people who will be graduating from that law school. Uh, Here in Boston, a program where I teach uh, courses occasionally is the um, Charles Houston Hamilton uh, Law Center, uh, which is helping law students try to target specific kinds of social justice issues that they can have as a concentration in whatever they do as uh, practicing attorneys. Um, There is 
another program that I've been involved in for many years, and it's at the Sloan School of Management, uh, where I'm an alumni, uh, and um, is helping people figure out how to do organizational and cultural intervention in organizations where they work, understanding how you establish employee groups, how you begin to teach employees, um, uh, especially employees who are new to the corporate and business world, how to use the tools that they have been given around economic development, around around issues having to do with employment discrimination and other kinds of issues. But I, you know, to get but your I, arms I, I, around all BJ, of this, but one of the things, for example, you're from Florida. The governor of Florida has cut funding to historically black colleges in Florida. Howard uh-huh. University is under great, a great deal of Howard University's budget has been cut to the bone. Exactly. Black schools are in a position of vulnerability where they simply cannot do these programs without losing funding. Absolutely. They are just trying to stay afloat. This is the war, and so I'm saying the only way you can wage an organized struggle is to understand the terrain in which you're struggling, is to have an analysis and a grip on the issues. Otherwise, you are just organizing and struggling in a vacuum. And I think one of the public spaces that are still available to us is blog talk radio. And I think that becomes an instrument of popular education. If we can get our people to gather around and listen to blog talk radio radio, and the way in which we listen to music all day, I think that is something that is still in our control. I think the airwaves, that we have the power to reach thousands of people if black people would take seriously and understand that this is our one chance to really begin to break through all of the the oppression, not only physical oppression, but the psychological oppression. So we have to take things like blog talk radio and use them as tools of education, use it as a tool of education. And black people have to start taking seriously the necessity of supporting these kinds of endeavors and commanding their children and themselves to sit around and listen and to participate and to learn. That's where I think is a realistic avenue to realistic conversations and critical analysis about the bottom line issues. Well, I uh, unfortunately I, I think we've agree. lost control of our institutions. Well, I think that I mean I, I give you a good example, Ruby. I can't keep up with the number of groups 
that I mean, I think that people have gotten to the habit, especially on on social media like Facebook. And I can't keep up with the number of groups. It's always a new group. You think of some particular idea and you start a group, and it has fragmentized the concentration of black It's overwhelming. Discourse. Yeah, it really is so very overwhelming. Um, I'll give you another example. I spend probably two hours every evening, in addition to my full-time work, um, working on, because I, I look at this, our common ground, as my life's work, and the other work is my work where I get paid. But I, I, I and, and, and by the time you finish trying to market, I mean, uh, uh, on all these social media platforms, um, I have, uh, known over the years to have spent my entire Saturdays doing research to um, bring the best black minds to our common ground all week. I'm back and forth with people trying to bring them in and, and do the research so that we can have informed conversation. And our number is 347-838-9852. We have lots of people who are listening but don't participate in how we can get this done. Now, I know that you and I are going to be working on a project because I'm very interested in ensuring that people understand the kind of modern-day lynching and um, attacks against the black body and the work that you are doing at Spirit House on that. Uh, to bring you into the fold of the Our Common Ground Media um, and Communications Group. Um, we have been looking for someone who can uh, do a program once a week around the issue of employment discrimination and laws and helping people. The other is I'm looking for someone who is informed and an expert in the area of debt and wealth creation. Um, so it's just so much work um, that has to, that that has to take place um, in 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 all of this in order to have this broadcasting be the academy. And I, I don't think that it's not fair to put that whole responsibility on you or one person. For those people who are listening, I want you to hear me very clearly. Blog Talk Radio and the black churches are our two best bet for survival in the 21st century. And if we don't care enough to take advantage of this and grow it and take it as seriously as we do bebop stuff every day on the radio. I see people listening to music all day long, so I don't want to hear this stuff about what time things come on or what people are busy. We're not too busy to be popping our fingers all day. And, <laughs> and I think that we need to grow up. 
We have very mm-hmm. few options, and and our chances are running out. So yeah. if you're listening tonight, I would beg you to tune in, to spread the word, to call in, to donate money, to make suggestions, to call and ask to be on an advisory committee. One person cannot do this work by themselves. This blog talk radio is like what the black press meant for black people, black newspapers after black reconstruction when white folks were criminalizing and demonizing black folk in the same way that they are doing today in the major media. What does it mean for people who spend a trillion dollars a year to have depended on a white media, corporate media, to cover the Million Man March, which they didn't do? So basically, we were invisible. And so we have to really begin to take the responsibility and believe that our lives do matter. So I hope that somebody, someone tonight who's listening to this conversation will begin to take seriously the question of how might we assist our sister in building up this medium as a way to educate and sustain our people. Yeah. We've got a call, Ruby, uh, 312, who wants to get in on this conversation. 312, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Uh, Salam's Janice, uh, Dr. Sales. Um, Hi. I just wanted to... House uh, Music Lover, thanks for joining us. Uh, 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 Thanks for having me. I I was just listening um, on hold. And um, I just wanted to chime in on the... uh, What Dr. Sales was speaking about, the word uh, rebellion. And um, I understand both of you guys' sides, but I I definitely understand um, having a little problem with it. Um, because it, it, it does take away the, 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 the uh, innocence or the, the presumed innocence. It makes the people who are rebelling automatically guilty. And that's a problem when you're actually the one, the one that's being assaulted and you're just reacting to that assault. And it's called a, um, it's taken the, 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 the moral, uh, the morality, um, from the person being assaulted, so I I, I totally get it, um, totally understand, and I, I I probably had a twinge of the same thought that Dr. Sells did back, um, you know, however long ago, but hearing her actually uh, uh, bring that up and it, it you know just resonated that I yeah I, I, I understand it totally. Well, thank you. And so, what would be your understanding of resistance? Well, just I guess just uh, an analogy. Uh, if if I'm just in my own person, and someone comes along and tries to uh, uh, make me do whatever passively or aggressively, um, and I don't do it, you know, I, whether I just freeze or I go in the opposite direction, or you know, I just do the opposite of what they want, um, you know, for me. Um, you know, that's resistance, um, just not going along with that established or that status quo. Um, 
if you know if that can count for something you know physical or actual or an action um that's what resistance I couldn't tell you the um the Marion Webster's definition of it, but that's what it that's what comes up when I think about it i when you were speaking, I was thinking about resisting arrest or thinking about when someone is trying to steal your pocketbook or something and you fight back, you're resisting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's something about resisting that speaks in my mind of fighting back, refusing to comply. Mm -hmm. Now, I think rebellion is a... See, the thing that I think that bothers me about rebellion, Janice, I, I, I think that it, there is something in it that that is that reduces that aggrandizes the person who you are quote unquote rebelling against. It gives them an authority designation in the world. It somehow legitimizes the authority in the same way when we call enslavers masters. I hear you. I, I kind of also truly believe um, it, it comes, a lot of this, uh, uh, whoever, you know, uh, um, starts the dialogue, who does, who who, who speaks these words or whatever, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on who it is and how they actually uh, meant to do it because they're, they're setting the groundwork, you know, they're, uh, they are, are uh, telling the story um, and they're spinning it and they can, you know, inject these words subjectively and to, to invoke an emotion or a reaction. You know, these people that, you know, that do this for a living and they put these words uh, uh, in certain places at certain times to, you know, specifically to, uh, you know, for purpose. Um, so I guess, you know, it all boils down to, um, you know, the, the whole narrative. Um, aspect of telling the story, and that's what you're going to, and uh, what you guys, or cute women, are talking about, in terms of um, us being able to tell our story, and us being able to educate ourselves, and be self-sustaining, and um, teaching ourselves. Uh, I thought you made a great point with all the, uh, when you mentioned all the people that have all these advanced degrees, um, from, you know, the 60s on forward. There's tons of uh, Genesis. He's had tons of doctors. Uh, PhDs on the show, uh, you know, we're still talking about the same thing, um, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later or whatever, um, because the, the information somehow isn't being shared properly, it's not being disseminated, uh, or for whatever reason, it's not being absorbed, and we keep end up falling for the same traps um, over and over again. So at some point, yeah, we're going to have to, um, you know, take over the dialogue and, um you know, narrow in on that narrative that uh, makes people move the way you need them to move. Well, the truth of the matter is the only person, and I'm paraphrasing the sentiments that Malcolm X said when he said a black PhD is called, is a, is called nigger, mm -hmm. the only person that people that you're are given the right to lord your power over it are other black people mm. so when you are so the, the 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 degree in many ways 
signals that you are complying with the rules of the game. I'm not anti-education because obviously I read, I, so it's not, and, and I've gone to college. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking us to reconsider what is the nature of our education and why is it that titles are so important to the black, to us today? When do we stop being sisters and brothers? Why do we lord our titles over people? Why do we define ourselves according to our titles? And why do we think that our titles make us more than someone else? I mean, I just think we've got to look at that. It seems like the only thing that we think that we have is our title. Yeah. And and I think that it's a different kind of elitism. I think that we've got to really... We can no longer allow people who get educated on the backs of struggle, we can no longer allow them to give nothing back to the black community, to go to Dartmouth, to go to these places and be absent. Howard is struggling to survive. Well, I do want to say that um, this week uh, Howard University Board of Trustees is has proposed the notion of selling Howard's television station. Oh my God! Don't tell me that. Um, and that's very disturbing. Uh, don't tell me that. Yeah, I mean, Morris Brown sold off its land bit by bit. ITC here in Atlanta. Struggling to survive. The hit, there's been a hit list against black colleges. And we are very naive to believe that white people are going to educate our people in any large numbers. We have tokens, but you know, in 1938, there, in the 1930s, there were 38 black medical schools destroyed. And I see the same thing happening to historically black schools today. But yet people are walking around strutting their titles. What does it mean to have a Ph.D. when you can't help save your people? Well, you know, it's really interesting. And House, you might have noted it if you watched the uh, hearing, the Benghazi hearing. I, I... I was deeply disturbed, and it might have been I was also deeply into a very bad fever, but I was deeply disturbed by the behavior of Elijah Cummings, uh, who in a very impassioned way defended and saw clearly the, uh, had a clear insight as, as to what was going on that on that committee but some of the other things that go on in the House and go on in politics and does not go on with the black caucus on issues that they have prioritized, I don't see that kind of passion. I don't see that kind of continuing passion about all of the issues that were raised during the uprising in Baltimore. I I think that's absolutely right, but I think that we've got to be clear 
that in order to make it in that seat where they sit, you must be in service of the empire. That's just how it is. Now, you can call me anti-intellectual. You can call me anti-black. You can call me anything you want to call me. But that's the bottom line. And and we've got to ask ourselves what we've got to think about Carter G. Woodson, the miseducation of the Negro. We've got to really ask, because white education produced white people who are guardians of the prerogatives of white society. They're guardians of society, as Plato and Aristotle talk about. Who guards our society? If we're in the service of the empire, and not not only who guards it, but um, you know how do we get that self determination that uh, King always spoke about? Um, and, and I guess in summation, one of the things I, I I do probably even a little bit too often, you know, I, either one or two quotes, you know, the one from Malcolm in that movie about uh, oh, excuse me, um, uh, about being um, bamboozled. Um, you know, let astray, run amok, you know, that one. And um, quoting uh, Curtis Mayfield, um, you know, from uh, his song, Educated Fools from Uneducated Schools. You know, pimping people is the rule and polluting water in the food. Um, and I, I think of Ben Carson specifically when I <laughs> when I think of Curtis, that lyric from Curtis Mayfield nowadays. Well, I I just think that the way we get through this, and the reason why I'm stressing this, is that there's always a tendency when we talk about the state of the race is to put our condition on the backs of uneducated uh, black people who've not received college degrees and poor black people. And I'm saying that is unjust. None of our hands are clean. Not even poor people's hands are clean. We've all bought into the values of white supremacy, and we must be clear about that. We are complicit in our own oppression. So the question becomes, what does that mean? And how can we begin to set forth a 10-point or 15-point plan. And I really meant what I said about what are the instruments that we can use today to begin a massive education campaign for our people that gives them the information that they need in order to effectively and intelligently resist the uh, white supremacy today and sustain the gains that we get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got to do that. There's no way around that. And, and we've got to just stop lying to ourselves. My hands are not clean. I should have known after being in the movement. I should have never been living in white communities all those years. My hands are not clean. I went back to my mother's house, to where I grew up, when my mother was sick and dying. 
and I had an epiphany. The community was in just a devastated state. That community had once been the pride of the black community. It was devastated. And I used to think, God, how did people stay here? And then I thought, thank God that they were there because at least they did the best that they could in holding together territory that I had abandoned. And I had a new respect for those people who stayed and soldiered in a community that was under assault. So when I say hands are not clean, I'm not leaving myself out of that. I was also exercising false consciousness. And so, so I think we, we have to ex- be... How do we exercise a true consciousness, Ruby, in all of this? Hey, House, thanks for your call. Um, thanks. thanks for having me. I really appreciate your support of this broadcast for so very yes, many years. Yes, thank you. And you brought up some really interesting um, discussions. But, Ruby, how do we begin to exercise a an authentic consciousness? I keep going back to the question that you raised. You've said it out already. We have to interrogate what was our understanding of freedom and how do we live out that understanding. And we have to look at things that we did well, and we have to also look at how we were complicit in our own oppression. What sense does it make to give everything to fight to the death, to get out of the empire, only to walk back in it voluntarily and to become servants, not because you were put in change this time, but because you volunteered to go back in the house to become servants of the very people whom you had fought so hard to free yourself from. We can't move forward unless we begin to have critical analysis where we engage in profound truth-telling, where we analyze, that we deeply analyze the choices that we've made, and to understand why we made these choices. Why is it that it's such an honor to teach at Harvard and not the same kind of honor to teach at Spelman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've got to look at that. Yeah, but, why is but, it that but, poor black people engage in certain behaviors? What but is then, it that made us open to committing suicide by using drugs? Why would you be complicit when you know people are trying to kill you? Why would you turn around and kill yourselves? But is, is that a, a starting point? I mean, for instance, I look at I look at Spellman, I look at Morehouse, um. I look at Howard, I look at Fisk, I, I look at Southern, um, Lincoln University, and see a great deal of, uh, of very real impediments to an authentic 
consciousness. Yes, but the impediments will never disappear unless we make them disappear by committing our heart that we see it as a labor worthy of our love, as a love worthy of our labor. It's never going to change if we're not there to make it change. If it's imperfect, then we must make it better instead of running to white institutions and giving the best of who we are. Howard is never going to be better unless we make it better. If everyone who has a different, has a progressive vision of education abdicate the doors of Howard, then how will it ever change? The Moreland Spingarn Collection, one of the best repositories of black culture in this country, is having a hard time surviving. It's, this is disgraceful. What difference does it mean to have black millionaires when nobody when we don't give to our black schools? Why would some, why would blog talk radio struggle to survive in the black community? They took away the major they took away our voices on the airwaves. Why wouldn't we give to our own to our to our presence in the world. So I don't think BJ, I don't think we can move forward without having serious critique with hindsight, insight and foresight. Any actions that we do that are not grounded in critical criticism and self criticism will be problematic. And we have to be willing to tell the truth about ourselves, not just about other people, but about the ways in which we participated. And then to ask the question, what will it take to revitalize our communities? If we know gentrification is going on, where are people who understand clearly what's going on, who have the the intellectual resources to fight it, and the financial resources, we are not powerless. Why are we letting people take our communities? Why are we all running to live in white communities? What is magical and special about a white community? You're you're absolutely right. I mean, look at what's happening in Baltimore. Look at look at what happened in Washington D.C. We went from being the majority to now being slightly the majority. So we have to ask ourselves, why did we think it was more attractive to live among white people? Why did we think that was a a, a high expression of our humanities and our equality to abdicate and leave our, our to, to leave our communities? unguarded, to let them deteriorate, to invest our monies in white America while our own communities deteriorated. Why did we get involved? You can want to do to give people drugs to kill them, but why did we take them? Just because white folks intended the COINTELPRO to destroy activism by drugs 
the question that we must ask ourselves, what was in us as a people that made us participate in our own deaths? Well, you know, one of the things we've got to break through, in my mind, Ruby, is that we've got to start thinking that black self-determination is not about yourself. It is about a collective self. Yes. Uh, we could we could we could uh definitely talk about this more um and you're gonna be with us next month um uh to do that <laughs> well can 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 we ask people who are listening tonight that when we gather again that I want each person tonight to at least commit to having brought to the conversation to the to this conversation, three people. And each week I hope that we will commit, and I will make that pledge. Let us pledge to bring people to common ground. Well, we you certainly... say that you believe in the work that we're doing and that I'm doing. And that BG... If you believe in the work, then you'll understand and support the work and believe that it's your work. It, it certainly has to be uh, a part of coming to an authentic consciousness that we've got to value the the notion of our own exchange. Yes. That we've and got the hard to work that you're doing. We should yeah. not. I guess I'm really. We should not be killing one or two people. It's well, hard work to do this, and not to have it regarded is as problematic as walking away from our communities. Well, that's. I know you, know, you didn't we, know I was going to say all of this, but I <laughs> I have to say this. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that when you come back next week, and uh, <laughs> I certainly am very supportive of others who do this work, Dr. Wilma Leon. Uh, Scotty Reed, uh, Booker Elliott, Max Parthas, people who have been part of this broadcast and have supported us in what we're trying to do. Dr. Ruby Sales, thank you so very much for for joining us next week here at Our Common Ground. Guess what we're going to be talking about? We're going to be talking about reproductive justice through human rights. With Loretta J. Ross. Ross. She's the co founder and the national coordinator of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective. And I'm really excited about having her come back. She hasn't been, she reminded me that she hasn't been on our common ground since we were broadcasting in the Florida market. Wow. And um, that's my bad. That's my bad. She's appeared on CNN, BET Lead Story, Good Morning America, The Donahue Show, Democracy Now!, and The Charlie Rose Show, as well as way back in the day, um, uh, Loretta was was a, a, a regular. Dr. Ruby Sales, thank you so very much. Thank you you so much for inviting me to the common ground. 
Thank you so very much, all of you. Thanks to House Music Lover for his call from Chicago and insightful comments. And we'll see you here with uh, Dr. Loretta Ross next week at Our Common Ground. Who are you? When you don't know, when you should have done, but you didn't, when you should have, but you don't, when you can't find, won't ask, can't say what you want. Who are you? When you recognize that you have accepted, tolerated, and accommodated stuff from them or him or her that has diminished yourself, just who are you? Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. A special thanks to our chatters in our chat room. Join us on Facebook, Tumblr, Pin interest and our website at ourcommonground.com. Twitter follow at Janice OCG. Have a great weekend. See you next week. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.